they themselves are equally pleased with both errors. And so, this is not about getting spooked by silly games that kids play on the internet, like Charlie Charlie, or seeing demons behind every corner. But as I was rereading through the Screwtape letters in the past week, I happened upon chapter 7, and this is an even more diabolical thought in my mind. And I wanted to read you just a couple of words from this. My dear Wormwood, I wonder you should ask me whether it is essential to keep the patient in ignorance of your own existence. That question, for at least for the present phase of the struggle, has been answered for us by the high command. Our policy for the moment is to conceal ourselves. Of course, this has not always been so. We are really faced with a cruel dilemma. When the humans disbelieve in our existence, we lose all of the pleasing results of direct terrorism and we make no magicians. On the other hand, when they believe, when they believe in us, we cannot make them materialists and skeptics. At least not yet. I have great hopes that we, will, we shall learn in due time how to emotionalize and mythologize their science to such an extent that what is, in effect, a belief in us, though not under that name, will creep in while the human mind remains closed to belief in the enemy. The life force, the worship of sex, and some aspects of psychoanalysis, easy for me to say, may here prove useful. If once we can produce our perfect work, the materialist magician, the man not using but veritably worshiping what he vaguely calls forces while denying the existence of spirits, then the end of the war will be in sight. I think Lewis is on to something there. I think that's the part, the culture that we live in, where essentially we deny the reality of the spiritual world while at the same time listening to it constantly. But for Christians, I think sometimes we're even in a worse place. I find it in myself sometimes. You see, we don't disbelieve, at least not consciously, but we're more than vaguely embarrassed by the whole notion of the supernatural. Theologian Roger Olson has a blog that I occasionally look at, and at the end of April, he wrote this. Most contemporary American evangelical Christians only pay lip service to the supernatural, whereas the Bible is saturated with it. To a very large extent, we have absorbed the worldview of modernity by relegating the supernatural, miracles, scientifically unexplainable interventions of God to the past, Bible times, and elsewhere, the mission field, Africa, Central America. This is obvious in how we react to illness among ourselves. We pray for the sick, that God will comfort them and be with them in their misery. We pray that God will give their doctors skill as they treat them, but we avoid asking God to heal them. We avoid any mention of demons or demonic possession and strictly shun exorcism as primitive and superstitious, except where Jesus did it. 
we have gradually adopted the idea that prayer doesn't change things, it changes me, and regard petitionary prayer as something for children. I suspect that our contemporary evangelical avoidance of the supernatural in the physical realm of reality has little to do with intellectual questions. I suspect it has more to do with wanting our religion to be respectable. Above all, we don't want to be viewed around the world as fanatics. The abuses of the supernatural seen on cable television cause us to drop it entirely. But as the old saying goes, the cure for abuse is not disuse, but proper use. And we have thrown the baby out with the bathwater. And this was the part that really got me at the last paragraph. Over the years of teaching theology, I've made a point of interrogating Christians who come to America to study theology from Africa, Asia, and Latin America. I ask them about their view of American Christianity. When I give them absolute freedom to be totally transparent, they often say they are shocked by American Christianity, including evangelical Christianity because of its individualism, consumerism, and lack of belief in the spiritual world, by which they mean the supernatural. And that's where we are, we are today. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray that today in this message, your truth would shine through. That we would be able to get past embarrassments and disbelief and not have an unhealthy obsession with the subject at hand. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. I've entitled today's message, Know Your Enemy. 1 Peter 5.8 says, Your enemy the devil prowls, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. And so we have to start with the simple and somewhat shocking to modern ears idea that the devil is real. Polls say that somewhere between 50 and 60% of Americans say they believe in the devil. I wonder what it is we're agreeing to when we say that. Red tights, horns, cloven hoofs, tail and pitchfork. You know, something straight out of the far side. It's one of my favorite comics. Perhaps it's the movie version. You know, the suave, thin-looking guy, English accent, maybe French, impossibly well-tailored suit, goatee, you know. Is that what we're thinking about? You see, in our modern imagination, we make the devil the guardian of hell and we somehow confuse him with the Greek god Hades, who was the lord of the underworld. And we adopt this sort of inadvertent dualism where the devil is the equal and opposite force to God. And that is not the picture we see in Scripture. You see... I think it's those caricatures that cause us to disbelieve, or at least partially. But it's very interesting. There is a television show that's been running for a while called Supernatural. And I am here to tell you that Supernatural is more than a TV show. But I find it very interesting that in a world of science, in a world obsessed with facts, there is an unbelievable amount of interest in things of the supernatural world. Right now, on television, True Blood, Grimm, Once Upon a Time, Being Human, Sleepy Hollow, American Horror Story, Bitten, Penny Dreadful, Constantine, and Supernatural. And that's not all of them. 
I could go on. And it's not a new phenomenon. The X-Files, Charmed, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel. We don't take these things seriously, but we seem to be obsessed with them. And I haven't even touched novels or movies. What is it about the supernatural that compels us? You see, the Bible assumes the supernatural world. It does not offer a defense of it. Not only does it assume God, but it assumes spiritual powers, both good and evil. Seven books of the Old Testament specifically refer to Satan or the devil. In the Gospels, Satan is mentioned 29 times, 27 of them by Jesus himself. So if we take Jesus seriously, we don't have any choice but to take the devil seriously. We like to chalk this up to primitives believing all sorts of stuff, looking for explanations for natural occurrences. After all, didn't they have every version of a storm god or a sun god or a fertility goddess and so on? Aren't the horns and the hoofs just Christians appropriating the Greek view of Pan? Haven't we grown out of this kind of thing? I mean, science. Yes, primitive cultures had gods for all sorts of natural occurrences. But I would remind you that the Jews did not. In Genesis 1, God is the God who created all of that stuff, not the God of that stuff. And the people were often pulled away to worship Ashtoreth or Baal or or Molech. But they were always shown who God really was. And it seems that the devil, those pictures of horns and the tail and the cloven hoofs, were not Christians in the Middle Ages appropriating Greek culture, but mocking the horned gods everywhere. That's where that started. Oh, and in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus' famous passage where Peter declares, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, in verse 13... Jesus responds to him, and in verse 18, he says this, that he would build the church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. Now, there's an interesting thing that happens where, where and when this is going on. Jesus is in Caesarea Philippi. It's in modern-day Syria, north of and east of Galilee. He's probably sitting on a hill, scholars think, and he's looking down the hill, and there's a cave at the bottom of the hill, and there is a temple there, to the god Pan. This is the Greek god who looks like a goat, a satyr, with cloven hooves and horns. And they called that temple in this cave the gates of hell. That's where that comes from. You see, Jesus took that spiritual world seriously. And He casts out demons at least eight recorded times in the Synoptic Gospels. And in Luke 13 implies that there were more. And John 21, 25 says that only a few of the miracles of Jesus were recorded. And here's the one that I find the most interesting when it comes to Jesus and the supernatural. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 7, Matthew chapter 3, at the end, Jesus is baptized. And verse 17 says, And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Last verse of chapter 3. Chapter 4, verse 1 says this, 
Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. You see, the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, at the point which he is anointed as the Messiah, in his office of Messiah, he is immediately confronted with the devil. Jesus believed in the supernatural. He didn't shy away from it. He didn't try to explain it away. We're tempted to ask, but what about science? Come on. Even Jesus lived in the first century. He was a primitive. He didn't know about things. I mean, medicine takes care of illness today. We know how the solar system works. We know how to split the atom. Surely the stuff of the supernatural world is just science that primitive people didn't understand. And I would respond that all of those statements have an element of truth to them. But an element of truth can be twisted. Yes, the ancient world was superstitious, but they were also architects and builders and developed sophisticated technologies and amazing achievements. They were not as primitive as we like to think. Roman aqueducts and buildings stand today. And Roman roads still exist 2,000 years later. And when is the last time you rode on a road that lasted more than 10 years? You see, we have to be careful when we look down on, pre- on previous cultures. We do know more. And there's a whole lot we don't know. To be sure, medicine and lasers and, yes, your iPod would look like magic if we could zap you back to the first century. But note, when Jesus heals the lepers and the paralytics, when he heals the blind or the lame, these are not blamed on demons. You see, Jesus' power is not only over demons, but over illness as well. And science can explain a great many things, but not everything. And if we believe that God exists, that he is the creator of all, Why do we have such a hard time believing that he's got a much greater understanding of the world than we do? That he could really have a good handle on what can and can't be done. That he could break into his very creation and act upon it if breaking in makes sense. You see, science and faith are not opposed to one another because it's science's job to explore the material world. That's what it does its rules, its laws. But science can't talk about the supernatural world because by definition, it can't go there. It's not in its wheelhouse, so to speak. Not what it's designed to do. So if people ask you or say to you, we can't believe in this because of the light bulb, as at least one Christian theologian of the 20th century said, my response would be to ask a simple question. Why? Why do we assume they're opposed? You see, Scripture tells us the supernatural world is real. The devil and demons are real, and we need to take them seriously. And I spent a lot of time on this first point, and I did it on purpose, because if we are not set here, nothing else I say matters. We've got to get this into our minds and into our hearts before we move on. So second, we need to see the order and the chaos. You've heard the term principalities and powers. You see, the supernatural realm is real, but there's more going on than we know. 
In the ancient world, the forces of evil were often defined as chaos. Uncreation, so to speak. And we see traces of this kind of thinking in the Old Testament. Not that the Old Testament agrees with all the pagan cultures around it, but this is sort of the air, the religious air that was going on at the time. And the writers of Scripture are showing in the Jewish story that their story made better sense of the instincts that the pagans around them had than those pagan stories did. And the mistake is often made that we set those forces of chaos or uncreation up as equal and opposite to God, as I've said. And that's not the picture that Scripture paints. The Scriptures teach that there is a kind of order in the chaos. And at this point, I should note one thing. Today I'm not going to spend much time on the origin of the devil and demons. Um, And there is a uh, position paper from the church that you can take a look at. It's got a little bit more information, but frankly, it's a very complicated subject. It's very speculative because the Bible doesn't give us tons to go on, and often it involves passages like Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which are prophecies that refer to actual kings and possibly or probably the devil as well. Often, prophecy works on two levels in Scripture. But there's all kinds of debates on these things. And rather than get in the middle of debates in which people who are very serious and authentic followers of Christ disagree, I want to focus on what we need to understand, not where things came from. But suffice it to say, the Bible seems to indicate that Satan was was created as an angel who fell sometime before the fall of humanity in the Garden of Eden. If the Ezekiel passage is referring to him as well as mocking the king of Tyre, and I believe it probably is, then he was the highest of the high, a creature of light and beauty with delusions of grandeur. In Jude 6 and 2 Peter 2.4, we read verses that seem to indicate that not only was he fallen, but there was a fall among the angels. They sinned against God. And Revelation 12, 7 and 9 shows the archangel Michael fighting against Satan and his, uh, his demons, casting them out of heaven. And it's important to recognize there that Satan is the opposite of Michael, not the opposite of God. In the New Testament, Paul uses this phrase, principalities and powers in the King James, or rulers and authorities in other translations, at least six times. Generally, this is of of the spiritual realms. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, he says, For I am convinced that neither neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Colossians 1, 16, Paul says, For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. So Paul uses this thrones, powers, and rulers in Romans and Ephesians as well. And it seems clear that what he's doing here is showing a hierarchy in the spiritual realms. Some kind of hierarchy. These are created beings. Why is this important? I think for at least two reasons. First, 
Evil is a corruption of God's good and orderly creation. And even where it's marred, and the create, that creation cannot wholly be undone. Think about this. The demons, corrupt and evil, evil as they have become, no matter what, when, or how they fell, still can't hide from the reality that they are in rebellion against the created order of God. It's built into who they are. They cannot wholly hide from their nature. And second, I think this shows to us that there's far more going on than we understand. That there are plans and levels of authority arrayed against us that we have to take seriously. And we can't be flippant when discussing the reality and the seriousness of the spiritual warfare that we face. Next. Yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Throughout Scripture, from the beginning to the end, from the Garden of Eden to the life of Jesus to the end of Revelation, we see the devil and demons operating. In 2 Corinthians 2, we find Paul referring to the serpent in the garden as the devil. It's the first time that happens. We see it again in Revelation 12. I want you to understand, all throughout Scripture, we see the spiritual world. And sometimes we're tempted to relegate the works of Satan to the past or to some far-off future conflict at the end of time. We don't tend to see him at work today. At least not us Western, affluent, technology-loving Christians. Talk to someone who lives in the third world and your mind might be changed. But not only there. The spiritual realm lies at our doorstep and we don't recognize it. When I was in seminary, farther along ago in the past than I care to admit, I had a friend. We called him Chief. He was the great, great, maybe another great grandson of Geronimo. And I'm not kidding. And he had trained before he became a Christian to be a medicine man. And I remember having a conversation with Chief once and he said, Kevin, you would not believe the things I have seen. And I won't go into details, but for him, the spiritual realm was very real. Talk with Pastor Travis at the Aurora campus about spiritual oppression that he has personally seen. I once talked to a missionary, I lived in Toronto for a while, and and I once talked to a missionary who had lived in Africa for some years, and he had been home, and he was walking around Toronto, and he walked by a building, and he said he felt a sense of oppression that he had never felt outside of Africa before. And he looked up, and the building was for a television station called City TV. City TV is sort of like what would happen if WGN became a small chain of channels and you had one pop up in Dallas and Atlanta and Seattle and Portland. It's about five or six of them across major cities in Canada. And he was amazed at what he felt. And this is not some rabid see a demon behind every bush kind of a guy. The reality of the devil and demons is not something we can relegate to the days of the Bible. 1 Peter 5.8, which we read, says that the devil prowls, seeking whom he may devour. Not did prowl. 
In Greek, the verb form is the present active indicative, which means, for all of us non-grammarians, that it is an action happening right now and continuing to happen as we speak. It is not something that we can say did happen or will happen, but is happening. The devil is doing this, and there is no indication that he's going to take a break. He is alive, well, and at work today. Second, the devil is powerful. So what exactly can he do? If we grant that he exists, what can he do? What do demons do? What is the scope of their power? Martin Luther famously said, or compared, the devil to a bad dog on a chain. Or a leash. What should we make on that, of that metaphor? I think we have to be careful. I've heard that metaphor, that quote thrown around by Christians, and sometimes with a tinge of arrogance. As if there's nothing to fear, and somehow we are so superior to the devil. And there is a very real sense in which that's true. But I also think there's a sense in which it doesn't take seriously the reality of the devil. So I have an object lesson. I have a dog named Abby. This is my wife's favorite leash for my dog, Abby. It's short. It's easy to keep her close by. When I would walk my daughter to school, I would use this leash. Six feet long, a little bit longer, let her have a little bit more freedom. And the thing about Abby is she loves kids. And so I'm walking her to school. When I'd get close to kids, I'd have to do this number. Because if I didn't, she'd get excited and jump on the kids, right? And so you'd have to roll it up. But we have a third leash. It's a training leash. It's 20 feet long. It's still a leash. But a 20-foot leash is a leash that a dog, if it really wants to, can get to you from. And so we have to realize... that we have to be careful. The fact that the devil is tethered does not mean that he is toothless. And it is an important distinction. He has real power. And it's seen throughout Scripture. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul refers to his schemes, and he tells the Corinthian believers they have to forgive one another. Why? Why do they have to forgive one another? Because if they don't, the devil might outwit them. And in chapter 11 of the same book, verse 3, Paul makes it clear that we can be deceived and led astray by the devil. We cannot underestimate his power, and at the same time, we can't give him too much credit. It's a hard balance to maintain, but we have to. We have to remember that a leash does not take away teeth. It means that something is under control. So what is the devil about? What is his plan? I see three things over and over again in Scripture. Death, destruction, and chaos. Satan is, at least in some sense, the origin of evil, and he is certainly its supreme perpetrator and instigator. And when we look at the sweep of scriptures, 
we see a being totally and utterly opposed to everything that God is doing. At every turn, he sets himself against God and his redeeming work for humanity. But I think it goes even deeper than that. In his book, Evil and the Justice of God, British theologian N.T. Wright says this about the devil. The Satan, it seems, is opposed not only to humankind, to Israel and to Jesus, but to creation itself. It is constantly pressing to undo the project of God. The world which God said was very good. When, it, when what that world needs, according to the Bible authors, is remaking. The height of, of the Satan's aim, in other words, is death. The death of humans and the death of creation itself. The means that the Satan has chosen to bring the world and humans to death is sin. And sin is the rebellion of humankind against the vocation to reflect God's image into the world. The refusal to worship, worship God the creator and the replacement of that worship and that vocation with the worship of elements of the created order and the loss of image-bearing humanness, which inevitably results. Death is not an arbitrary punishment for sin. It is its necessary consequence. Since the turning away from the living God, which constitutes idolatry, is the spiritual equivalent of a diver cutting off his own breathing tube. And he goes on from there. You see, Satan and his demons use their powers in several ways, but they are all targeted at death. Why? Because that is uncreation. It is the opposite of what God is, because God is life. So how do they do this? I see several ways, most notably temptation. Even Jesus, as we saw, was tempted by the devil. They also use deception. From the garden on, and even today, we see deception. We'll get to more of that in a minute. And the third thing that I see is possession, at least in the Gospels, though even that is a bit of a misnomer. Technically, the New Testament never uses that word. People either have a demon or are demonized, according to the Greek, and that is that demons have a significant and demonstrable real influence over people. And there are different ways that it manifests itself. Physically as strength in Mark 5, bizarre behavior in Luke 8, when the man runs naked among the tombs living there, self-destructive in Matthew 17, and others. Millard Erickson, theologian, says this of demon influence. In all of these cases is the common element that the person involved is being destroyed, whether that be physically, emotionally, or spiritually. And I think taking these things seriously is important. But another way we can understand what the devil is about, what he's up to, is by naming him. Names in the ancient world had specific and significant meanings, which is sometimes hard for us to understand. I mean, after all, what is a Samsung Galaxy or a Ford F100? Those names don't mean anything, right? But when we look at some of the names given throughout Scripture, we learn something of the character of the devil, what he's up to, and how to respond. So here's a few of the names. The first 
is Satan, or really the Satan, Ha-Satan. It's a title, not a name. This name is, this is the name we see in Job chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, when he comes into the courtroom of God, and it seems that in this case, he is sort of a minor functionary in God's court, sort of a sadistic prosecutor, if you will. And the word means accuser or adversary. In Zechariah 3, he shows up as an accusing figure and stirs up David to take a census in 1 Chronicles 21. Closely related is the Greek term diabolos, or devil, means accuser or slanderer. In 1 Peter 5, the main verse we read today, he is called the adversary. In Matthew 4 and 1 Thessalonians 3, he is called the tempter. In Matthew 12 and Luke 11, he is called Beelzebul, or ruler of demons. Probably that word has some relation to the Hittite storm god Baal. The evil one in Matthew 13 and multiple times in 1 John, Beliar, a Greek term meaning worthless, which during the time in between the Old Testament and the New Testament became identified with Satan. Deceiver in Revelation 12, serpent and seven-headed dragon of old in Revelation 12 and 20. And John 8, 44, murderer and father of lies. His character shines through in these names. Evil, cunning, deceitful, powerful. But I want you to notice something about every one of those names. None of those names indicate a power of his own. All of those names indicate that he does not have the power to create, but only to destroy. And it is in these names that we begin to see the truth of Luther's contention that the devil is a bad dog on a leash. And if you want to understand literature and how theology influences it, we'll talk about Tolkien's Lord of the Rings in a minute, but that idea is exactly and completely embedded in what Tolkien said of Sauron or the evil in the Lord of the Rings. They couldn't create. They could only defile. But now we're going to turn to the good news because I can't leave us there. The devil, for all of his power, is defeated. For all the real harm that his demons can inflict, all of Scripture testifies to one consistent and powerful reality. The devil has been defeated from the very beginning, and every incident in which we see him, it's confirmed. God's plan cannot be stopped. You see, in the Old Testament, the devil is an accuser, not an executioner. In the garden, he sets the fall in motion, but the serpent is cast down, and the beginning of redemption happens, and what does what is prophesied? He will crush your head from the very beginning. In Job, he is the accuser, and he asks for more and more power over Job, but the story doesn't work out the way that he wants. The devil says, if you just let me have him, he's going to curse you. And by the end of Job, we hear from Job, we hear from God, we hear from Job's friends, but the devil is nowhere to be found. He does not speak. 
he is defeated. And contrary to popular belief, the Old Testament has shown the devil to be in God's employ, not his equal. He is a rebel with delusions of grandeur, one who needs permission to go after Job. And time after time after time throughout the Old Testament, the plans of evil are always defeated. Second, he's that the devil and demons are tempters and troublemakers, not kings or knights. When we look at how they interact with Jesus, we really see this. In the New Testament, first and foremost, I want to go back to Matthew chapter 4 and the temptation. Because I believe this gets at the heart of both Satan's plan and the fact that he is defeated. Many theologians will tell you that the temptation is sort of the entire ministry of Jesus in an encapsulated form. And we could spend weeks talking about it, but we don't have that kind of time because there's all kinds of layers and things going on here. But we know the story. Jesus is baptized, immediately led by the Spirit into the wilderness, 40 days without food, and he's going to be tempted. And the first, the devil says, if you're the Son of God, make bread out of those stones. And the second, if you're the Son of God, throw yourself from the pinnacle of the temple, and your angels will catch you, and everything will be good. And the third temptation is, you want a kingdom? I've got a kingdom. Bow down before me and this kingdom's yours. One 21st century theologian says this about the temptation. Matthew and Luke recount three temptations of Jesus that reflect the inner struggle over his own particular mission and at the same time address the question as to what truly matters in human life. At the heart of all temptations, as we see here, is the act of pushing God aside because we perceive him as secondary, if not actually superfluous and annoying in comparison with all the apparently far more urgent matters that fill our lives. Constructing a world by our own lights without reference to God, building our own foundation, refusing to acknowledge the reality of anything beyond the political and material while setting God aside as an illusion That is the temptation that threatens us in its many varied forms. This is what's going on in the temptation of Jesus. This is how Satan operates. He goes on to say, moral posturing is part and parcel of temptation. This is really important for us as Christians. It doesn't invite us directly into evil. No, that would be far too blatant. It pretends to show us a better way where we will finally abandon our illusions and throw ourselves into the work of actually making the world a better place. It claims, moreover, to speak for true realism. What's real is what's right there in front of us, power and bread. By comparison, the things of God fade into unreality, into a secondary world that no one really needs. God is the issue. Is he real, reality itself, or isn't he? Is he good, or do we have to invent goodness ourselves? The God question is the fundamental question, and it sets It sets us down right at the crossroads of human existence. What must a savior of the world do or not do? That is the question of the temptations of Jesus. It's a long quote, but it's important. Because it shows how temptation really works. It's not in your face, it's subtle. And it shows from the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, the devil was already defeated. He just didn't know it yet. 
Because the temptations Jesus faced were the temptations that made sense for the mission he was on. Right? Show you're the Son of God. Here's the kingdom. But Jesus had a choice to resist that temptation, that twisting. He didn't yield. And it's very interesting that in Matthew 28, verse 18, after the resurrection, just before the ascension, Jesus says, all power on heaven and on earth has been given to me. So what does the devil offer? The devil offers you the earth. That's what he offered Jesus. But what Jesus did gave him so much more. And we see this also happen when Jesus is dealing with troublemaking demons. At every turn, every one of them, they have to bow to his will. And the power over them that he has, he gives to his disciples in Luke 9. Even though at the end of Luke 9, they don't know what to do when they can't get one to go away. And he instructs them further. You see, demons do have power. But they have to be, we have to be aware of the fact that they must bow before Christ. Over and over. In James chapter 2, we're told that they shudder at the thought of God. They can make trouble. They do. But they are not the warriors that we would like to make them believe, they would love for us to believe them to be sometimes. And ultimately, the devil's schemes are self-defeating, not successful. As I said, I love The Lord of the Rings. I like the movies, and I really, really hated the cracks of doom scene at the end. Because in the movie, what happens? Frodo's tempted, but then he overcomes it, and he gets the ring out. But that's n- and into the fire. But that's not what Tolkien wrote. Tolkien wrote that Frodo couldn't do it at all. And as Gollum comes and bites the ring, it's all, he doesn't fight with Frodo at all. He slips and falls. And Tolkien was making a very important and very theological point that evil will always undo itself in the end. That was the point he was making. Satan opposed Jesus every turn in his ministry. And we see it from the beginning, from the temptation. We see it in the demons that he was faced. We see it in the corruption of the religious and civil leaders. And he seeks to destroy Jesus. And the cross becomes the means by which he's going to do it. I will kill this person and this will be done. John eight forty four. after all, Jesus calls Satan a murderer. But I love the irony. God uses evil to defeat itself. The cross, the symbol of God's curse, would become the means by which God restores all of creation to himself. Remember what N.T. Wright said in that quote, death is the necessary consequence of sin? In the cross, it has been turned in upon itself because Jesus conquered death. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 tells us, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross, and having disarmed the powers and authorities, He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. God subverts Satan's evil schemes 
by using them against him. Which leads us to the final point. And this is quick. The devil and you. So what do we do with all this? This is jumping all over the place in scripture. Fairly heavy theological stuff. Practically speaking, what do we do with this? First, whose are you? Not who are you, but whose are you? As Christians, whose are we? In 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own, you were bought at a price. We should remember also Colossians 1.13. We have been moved from the dominion of darkness to the kingdom of light. And in verse 27, that the mystery is the glorious, those, that glorious riches of the mystery is that Christ is in us. We are his and we need to remember it. Jesus has already overcome the devil, and we are his. Second, we need to rely on God's word. And this is important for at least three reasons. First, it allows us to know the character of God and the devil alike. We become aware of the truth and are encouraged by it. Because when you know what the truth is, you're able to stand firm when troubles come. Remember Colossians 2, 6, and 7, be rooted in him, built up in him. If the devil is the father of lies, then we need to know the truth. Second, knowing the truth keeps us, related to the first, keeps us from being deceived, and it sets us on the proper path. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. And Psalm 119, 105 says, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. What does that mean? It means that when we know Scripture, we are set on the right path and not the devil's. Third, staying in the Word of God keeps us from sinning against God. Psalm 119.11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Jesus himself used this approach in the temptation. Every temptation, he responds with Scripture. And if Jesus does that, I think we ought to pay attention. We ought to follow suit. Finally, we return to 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 and 9. Be alert and sober-minded. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him. Stand firm in the faith because you know the family of believers through the world, throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. See, if we resist, he will flee. The devil is real and powerful, but he is defeated. He cannot control us or influence us indefinitely. Peter tells us we can resist. It's not in our own power, but in the power of God, whose we are, in the knowledge of him and the truth of his word. And so I would end with verses 10 and 11 of First Peter. And I believe it to be a prayer that we should remember. Peter says, In the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will restore you and make you strong, firm and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen.